This week on the Rotten or Righteous podcast, we asked the question, where's Scott and Luke at? Welcome back to Rotten and Righteous, the show where we are well into 60 episodes and yet we still don't know what we're doing. I'm Zach Geiler, and I'm the only one here today. And the reason is, is we recorded The Chosen Season 2, Episode 2, I Saw You as a group, but uh, I did not check to see if Scott and Luke uh, were being recorded. But luckily, I still have the notes from Season 2, and so I'm just going to run through it uh, uh, by myself, so it's probably not going to be as good as the normal episodes, but at least uh, we do have the complete second season of The Chosen uh, reviewed when this is, is done. As I said, we are continuing our review of the series The Chosen in their second season, and this week we watched episode two titled I Saw You. But before we get to that, it is time for everyone's favorite Totally True Conspiracy conspiracy theory podcast that is also totally fake but for the bit i will pretend that it is real podcast within a podcast where's satan at i just want to know where is satan right now i've always wondered what's the devil look like well, of course, there are all manner of lesser imps and demons, Pete, but the great Satan himself is red and scaly with a bifurcated tail, and he carries a hay for him. Oh, no. No, sir. He's white. As white as you folks. With empty eyes and a giant's head, teeth, hair, eyeballs, blood running down his arm. <laughs> This week, Satan is hiding deep in the dark crevice that we call the World Wide Web. That's right, boys and girls, the Antichrist himself is found on the internet. At least that's what the leader of the Russian Orthodox Church warns in an article published by the BBC back in January 2019. And I have every reason to believe this guy, who, by the way, looks like the melting offspring of Santa, the Pope, an American cab driver, and a rapper's bling-bling. And someone that scary-looking has no reason to lie. He warns that smartphone users should be careful when using the worldwide web of gadgets. That's a quote. Because it's an opportunity for Satan to gain global control of mankind. And anyone who is using insider tech lingo like World Wide Web of Gadgets to refer to smartphones is clearly someone who has a deep understanding of technology and how it works. Which is why, when he says the Antichrist is a person who will be at the head of the World Wide Web controlling all of humankind, I believe him. After all, I didn't even know that the internet had a head, but clearly it does, and that head is the devil. I mean, think about it. What letters are at the beginning? of every website. W, W, W. Turn the letter W 25% clockwise and what do you get? That's right, the capital Greek letter Sigma. And what sound does a Sigma make? 
S. And when you put three S's together, you get S. And one animal makes a S sound, a snake. And where do we find the first mention of a snake? Oh, I don't know. Genesis 2, when the devil is a snake? I mean, you sheeple can go on believing that the internet is a free society, and all the Russian church is trying to do is invoke fear in its followers to limit the use of technology that might undermine the Russian government's control over its people? Or you can believe the truth. Satan is the head of the internet. Heed Patriarch Krill. That's the real name of the leader of the Russian Orthodox Church's warning. He says, quote, every time you use a gadget, whether you like it or not, whether you turn on your location or not, somebody can find out exactly where you are, exactly what your interests are, and exactly what you were scared of. If not today, then tomorrow, methods and technology could appear that will not just provide access to all information, but will also allow the use of this information. Do you imagine what power will be concentrated in the hands of those who gain knowledge about what is going on in the world? Such control from one place forebodes the coming of the Antichrist. Do I imagine this? No, I do not imagine that the Antichrist is in charge of the internet, but thank goodness there are people like Krill doing my thinking for me. All hail the motherland, all hail Stalin. Wake up comrades, the end is near. And that's been this week's edition of Where's Satan At? Until next time, bottoms up. Satan laughs. At the beginning of The Chosen, episode 2, we're introduced to Nathaniel, a grumpy, self-righteous, educated Jewish man working as a Roman architect who just wants his salt water. The problem is, the foreman is a grumpy, self-righteous, uneducated Roman foreman who is tired of Nathaniel's constant nagging for salt water when he has already told Nathaniel that the salt water will be here in three days. The two argue for a bit and then crash. A nearby wall caves in and the laborer calls for help. The foreman shouts at Nathaniel, You're finished, you hear me? Then we're left wondering if anyone got seriously hurt in that crash. How was Nathaniel finished? Who's going to rebuild the wall? No, wait! Oh, no, stop it! Theme song, I have so many questions! Ah. After the opening credits, Luke, James, and John, as well as Thomas, are hauling a load of lumber to their campsite because Jesus always leaves some firewood behind for the next people, wherever he camps. Then, off in the distance, they see a man approaching, and they all stop and watch. Peter reaches for his knife and shouts, Don't come any closer. And I shout at my screen, Or what, Peter? The dude is a hundred yards away, and you have a letter opener. Luckily, the lone wanderer uh, it turns out to be a Jew, something that's odd, seeing that they are still in Samaria, and this Jew's got jokes. Peter asks the stranger what he wants, and the man responds, for the Romans to go away, for a beautiful wife, and to sup on some fatted goose. You know, what we all want. But then the man asks the million-dollar question. The stranger does. Are you boys following Jesus of Nazareth? Peter tells his other chosen, just play it cool, let's not say anything. But then the stranger says, hey, Peter, how are you? And Peter's like, yo, bro, how do you know my name? Are you a rat? You here to drop a dime on me and my boys? And the stranger's like, nah, Cephas, you got me all wrong. I'm a friend of your brother Andrew. Then Andrew comes on the scene and was like, hey, Philip, you smell bad. I missed you. And runs up and hugs the stranger who was apparently named Phil. 
Back at the camp, Peter is still not trusting this Philip guy. And Andrew is like, hey, bro, be cool. Philip's my boy. Stop being a turd and bring the guy a cup of water. So Peter brings Phil a cup of water, but Phil is sleeping. But he wakes up and takes the drink just as Matthew comes back from a hunt for firewood. Matthew reports that he checked the ravine, but all the wood was wet. And the Peter responds, no duh, you big dummy. Everyone knows that ravine wood is always wet. But Phil says Matthew is doing a great job, even though he has no basis on, on judging Matthew's job. He just got there. And then he tells all the other guys that he just so happens to be uh, a great wet wood dryer outer and goes to collect the damp detritus with Matthew. Before he leaves, he says, hey, it's too bad you boys don't have weapons or we could burn them like the prophecy of Magog that, that's found in, in, in Ezekiel 39. And all the male chosen just laugh, and they all decide to creepily recite the prophecy of Ezekiel 39 verbatim in unison, and I find it weird. For once, Mary doesn't join in. We're actually nine minutes into this episode, and Mary hasn't said a single word. This very well might be a record. But Mary Mags and Rama and Matthew just stare at the little Jewish boy's cult. They probably think it's creepy too, but they also look sad because they can't join in. It's a nice way of showing that the women of the day were not educated in the law of Moses like the men of the day were. But it's weird that Matthew, who was probably the most educated, didn't join in the chant. I mean, Matthew's gospel is considered far and wide as uh, uh, the gospel of Jesus that's directed towards a Jewish audience. So it's weird that, that of all the people that Jenkins left out of this chant was Matthew. And, and frankly, Dallas Jenkins has shown he is better than this. But uh, I guess for a story point, uh, they needed Matthew to stay out of the chant, even though it makes no sense. Then we're back with Nathaniel, who just had a terrible cold open at work that day. And he mopes his way through a bar and asks the bartender for his strongest and cheapest alcohol, please. The bartender asks, Rough day? And Nathaniel answers in the affirmative. Did someone die? Says the bartender. Yeah, says Nathaniel. The bartender's like, was it sudden? Nathaniel says, I think it was a long time coming for him, but it felt sudden. The bartender replies, Tell me about him, bub. And Nathaniel says he was an architect, just building his dreams, one blueprint at a time. He started from the bottom, and then he reached the top. The dude had plans to build synagogues one day, and man, these synagogues would have been legit. Best synagogues you'd ever seen. He felt like he was made for it. And you know what killed him? Hubris. And the bartender says, oh man, that's rough. You know, I think my dad had that, but he put some ointment on it and it went away. Matthew's going on a wood hunt, and he's not afraid. He's got his fancy tan cloak and Philip by his side. Phil asks Matthew, what's the deal with you and Peter? And Matthew's like, man, he's tripping because he thinks we're enemies because I used to be a tax collector. And Phil replies, brah, we all used to be something. But when it comes to Jesus, all that matters is am. We need to learn to put our past behind us. The sleepers, those out in the world, they look at what we did in our past, our past mistakes, but we are awake. But then Matthew asks Philip how he's so good at memorizing prophecy. And Phil tells him, I learned it at Hebrew school. Didn't you go, Matthew? And Matthew's like, yeah, but my brain's so big, they let me skip a few grades. And I was good at numbers. And I was so good at numbers, 
Uh, a matter of fact, that by eight, I was sent to apprentice under a bookkeeper. Then I was offered a job by Rome, uh, and that paid more than my daddy and both of my uncles. And so, when Pops threw me out, I was able to buy my first house at 13. Then Philip tells Matthew that he understands why his dad did that. And I say, harsh, Philip. Real harsh. But Philip goes on to explain that Matthew's dad was a man, and he did what he did according to the standards of men. Then Philip says something really confusing. He says, everyone you know is playing a different game than you. Then he asks Matthew if he gets it, and me and Matthew both shout at the same time, no, no, we don't get this. But Matthew goes a step further, going 0 to 100.8 seconds, and just starts yelling, everyone is always talking to me in riddles. Look, I like a good analogy or an inside joke as much as the next guy, but no, I, I don't understand what you're saying. And Philip's kind of shocked by this outburst. He says, look, bro, I'm sorry for triggering you. I'm sure you'll get it. But you see, I've been hanging out a lot with creepy John the Baptist. And well, you know the baptizer's way of speaking must be rubbing off on me. And Matthew's like, it's not that. I just feel like I don't belong anywhere. Then Philip comforts him and says, look, you're not the only outcast around here. You're pretty cool, dog. Just stick around and you'll see. Meanwhile, Nathaniel finds the only tree in Samaria to sit under and look at his blueprints and cry. He begins to ask God why in the world God is punishing him, when all he wanted to do was build sweet synagogues, but then pulls out a fire starter and lights his blueprints on fire. And at this point, the dude's supposed to be crying, you're supposed to be feeling bad for him, but he has so much snot coming out of his nose that it's just distracting. That's all I noticed about this scene. Was, was just rivulets of snot streaming out of his nose. Anyway, old Snotthaniel is waiting for God to show him why his life was destroyed, but God doesn't answer. Back at camp, Philip and Matthew are shaving wet logs. They're just, yeah, that's what they're doing. They're just shaving uh, uh, these logs so they can dry them. And Matthew tells Philip that he is confused as to why Jesus chose him when he doesn't know nothing about religion. And Philip tells him, From what I hear, Jesus himself doesn't like religion. What you need to focus on is the fact that Jesus did choose you. What you think you know doesn't really matter in the long run. You should be confident just because the Lord thought you were someone he wanted around. Now Nathaniel's still at the tree. And he's cold because the sun has gone down and his blueprints didn't, you know, create a fire for very long. And he decides to anoint himself with ashes of his burnt blueprints and then walks away in slow motion. Philip is tending the fire while the rest of the chosen are sleeping. Jesus finally returns to camp and greets Philip. He asks Phil, how's John doing? And Phil says, he's doing good. He sent me to follow you. And Jesus is like, cool, sounds good. Philip then tells Jesus a story about the last time John was in prison when he spoke to a Pharisee who witnessed the healing of Mary Mags and was troubled by what he saw. And Jesus is like, oh yeah, you're talking about my boy Nicodemus. And Philip asks, wow, I never thought you'd be friends with a Pharisee. So Jesus, what's your plans? After Samaria, they're heading up to Syria. Philip responds, so you're going from one dangerous place to another. If I didn't know better, I'd say you had a death wish. And Jesus responds, I wouldn't call it a wish. Well, what would you call it? Philip asks. And Jesus says, I don't really know how I want to talk about it. That's why I was gone for a couple of days. There's a lot on my mind. Then Jesus sends Philip to bed. But the newest chosen has one more question before he turns in. You see, 
he has this friend in Caesarea in, in Syria, and he's an architect who, if there's time, he would love to see. And Jesus says, of course, you know, sounds cool. I mean, it's a little on the nose, seeing as we just met an unknown architect at the beginning of this episode. It's kind of lazy writing, but no, yeah, 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 sounds good. You can, you can totally go see him. The next morning, Rama wakes up with her back sore from sleeping on the ground. But Mary Mags is nearby packing and tells her she'll get used to her chronic back pain in time, because that's how that works. Then they talk about how they're always packing and moving and how it's wearing on some of the people in the camp. And I shout at my screen at this time, Hey, Mary, Mary, if it's if it's so hard for you to pack and move all the time, just go home, please. Please, Mary, go home. But instead, Mary turns to Rama, and she's like, How come the boys get to creepily recite prophecy from the Old Testament? It's time for some girl power to step up, and we learn this stuff for ourselves. Rama thinks that's a silly idea, mainly because she can't read and write. But Mary Mags is like, hey, I used to be a demon-possessed prostitute, so of course I know how to read and write. You know, that skill that virtually no woman had in the first century? And because, of course, Mary Mags knows how to read, she knows how to get her hands on scrolls of the Torah, because this show should be called The Incredible Miss Magdalene, with side character Jesus. Over by the fire, Peter is impressed that the firewood is dry, and is taken aback when Philip tells him that he has Matthew to thank for the dry wood. Matthew is over by the second tree in Samaria, which is near camp, or, or which is near camp, and he's writing in a little book, just notes about what he sees. Peter then comes and scolds Matthew for keeping records of Jesus' deeds, worried that someone could find it and twist Jesus' words. And Matthew argues that his words are clearly written, making it harder for the Lord's enemies to twist. Then Peter's like, oh, you mean as clearly written as the last time I caught you writing, when you were spying on me for the Romans in the early episodes of season one? But Matthew has this newfound confidence, and he stands up to Peter for throwing who Matthew used to be in his face. And he's like, look, Pete, people out there want to define us, all of us, by our pasts, but we do things differently because of Jesus. Camp is all packed up, and the Chosen are on the move. Peter goes and walks to Jesus, uh, who's walking near the rear of this caravan, and he whispers, Hey, hey Jesus, Matthew's writing down all you're doing. Just thought you should know. And Jesus responds, Awesome. Good for him. Then Jesus goes on to describe how he feels about the two men. He says Matthew is a man of order, numbers, and divisions, while Peter is someone who acts on instinct and feeling. Peter then says, well, maybe, but I do think, and about my thinking, I've had a thought. You know, the group is getting bigger all the time, and, and with more people come opinions, different opinions about how we should do things. I don't know, maybe when you're away, if you wanted to, you could put me in charge of delegating and making divisions for the group. Jesus tells the outspoken follower, Peter, you know, you're kind of a jerk, but I appreciate your leadership capability, and I'll need that leadership in time. For now, just chill out. All these people are different, and they all bring different perspectives, and I don't want any of them silenced. Peter retorts, yeah, all right, I, I hear you, but, but there are some here that are focused on small, meaningless things that slows the rest of us down. Jesus then says, Pete, if, if someone is thinking about things you feel slow everyone down, Maybe it's you who need to slow down. Now Peter's downcast that his frustration is not being returned by Jesus, but Jesus comforts him saying, One day, Peter, there will need to be more structure. 
and I see you playing a big part in it. Peter asks, why not now? Why not more structure today? Jesus responds, because I'm still here. Now, Jesus doesn't say what he means by this, but promises to talk about it. When Peter asks if Jesus will talk about what he means soon, Jesus says, well, one of my favorite lines in the entire series so far. Ah, there's that word, soon. It's the most imprecise thing in the world. What is soon? A few hours? A few days? Years? A hundred years? A thousand years? Ask my Father in heaven how long a thousand years is. Then talk to me about soon. Jesus then runs to the front of the procession to take a turn pulling the cart. In the middle of the procession, Mary and Rama flank Matthew on each side and ask him to borrow a tablet so they can start studying the Torah. Matt is like, hey, I, I want to study too. Maybe I can go in the synagogue and, and write it down for you. We could study together. The ladies are like, oh, Matthew, that's cute, but the, the tour is really long and we don't know where to start. Matthew tells him that he will ask his new best bud, Philip, where to start, and they will just go from there. Matthew leaves. Thomas then slides up to the woman and says to Rama, his fiance, Hey, boo, um, I, I, I saw you talking to Matthew. You know, you, you can talk to me about the Torah. And Rama tells him, yeah, yeah, sure, whatever. You, whatever you say, man. Uh, maybe you should go take a turn pushing the cart. So Matthew and Philip are talking about studying the Torah, and Philip is about as helpful as a rock and does not give Matthew a place to start. But before Matthew can press the newest chosen to give him a straight answer, they come into view of Caesarea Philippi. Philip informs the former tax collector that the city is named after Philip the Tetrarch, brother of Herod Antipas. You know, that family that hates John for criticizing them for little things like killing their sons and marrying their nieces. Then Philip ends up promising to think of a passage and runs ahead. Philip arrives at Nathaniel's house to fetch him and bring him to Jesus. But the former architect is dead asleep, hungover from his rough night. Phil breaks into his home through a window and wakes his friend and gives him some water. Then Philip tries to talk Nathaniel out of his pity party. He suggests that maybe Nathaniel's purpose was not building the most on-fleek synagogues in the world, but maybe it was following the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth. Hearing this sets Nathaniel off on a laughing fit. It's a tirade on what he thinks about people from Nazareth. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? He says. Oh, that little dump on a craggy hilltop. No paved roads, no public buildings. They barely have a synagogue. I'm just telling it like it is. The family there? Illiterate. Day laborers and peasants. By the way, they sleep under the same roof as their livestock. Honestly, Philip, saying the Messiah is a Nazarene is practically heresy. And Philip's like, do you want to come see for yourself or keep making a fool out of yourself? After all, it's not like you, you're going to be late to work, seeing as he just dropped a building on top of some Romans. So with that, Nathaniel was convinced to at least go and meet Jesus. That night, Philip brings Nathanael to see Jesus, and Jesus informs Philip that he already knows Nathanael, whom he calls the truth-teller. This confuses Nathanael, as he doesn't know Jesus from Adam, but Jesus keeps talking. He says, man is often deceitful. And Israel began with Jacob, a bit of a deceiver, yes? But one of the great things about you, Nathanael, is that you're a true Israelite, in whom there is no deceit. Nathaniel begins to get defensive, thinking that Philip has told Jesus about him earlier, thinking this all is one big trick. But Jesus continues, Look, man, I've known you long before Philip called you to come and see me. Look at me. 
When you were at your lowest moment, when you were alone, I did not turn my face from you. I saw you under that fig tree. And that was all the convincing that Nathaniel needed to be blown away. The former architect turns to Jesus and says, You are the Son of God. Jesus then tells the former architect, If you think me knowing about you under a tree is impressive, just wait. You're going to see. Now earlier, Jesus sent John ahead to prepare for his trip to Syria. Well, John returns at this point, and he, Andrew, and Peter interrupt Jesus' conversation with Nathaniel. They tell Jesus that John says people are gathering to hear him, and many sick are gathering to be healed. Jesus' fame is spreading. Jesus thanks them for the news and then turns back to Nathaniel, and he says, So, you wanted to help build something? Something that would cause prayer and songs? Something to bring souls closer to God? Yes? Can you start tomorrow? And then, boom. End of episode two. Hey, that wasn't too painful, was it? Short, sweet, and to the point. Uh, I do have our scores from when we gave uh, this our rating. I'm not going to go into the detail because I don't remember everything. It was a few weeks ago. But I will say that Scott gave uh, this episode an A+. Luke gave it a B, and I gave it a B as well. Which, once we all average that together, is an A. So there you have it. Episode 2 of Season 2 of The Chosen is given an 86% an A rating. Of course, we use the grading scale of Carlton University. Go Ravens. Until next time, and I promise I have all the audio for next week's episode, I'm Zach Geiler. But before we go, you know, the other day I was washing my truck with my son, Joseph, and I can't believe what he asked me. He asked, Hey, Dad. Do you think we could use a sponge instead? Good night, everybody.